Well, let me give thanks for us, and then we'll dive into our study. Lord, thank you for bringing us to this place. Thank you for joining us through the internet and all the ways that we can through the modern technology, but at the end, we study the truth of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to understand and wrestle with these truths about lives so long ago and lives today. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the leaders of our country, that we would continue to be free to speak your word, and pray that we also might show your compassion and love and peace to this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let me catch us up, but very quickly. We are talking about a man named Job. He lived here, probably in northern Arabia, in about 1800 BC. Job was a God-fearing man, and he was just, not that he was perfect, but that he worshiped God and he was devout. And so you get this perspective. The book of Job is really brilliantly transmitted to us, and God has brought us a great story because we get to sit in the position of God, if you will, in the sense that we get to know what all is going on. Job only knows his own circumstances. And so it's almost like stepping back and looking at ourselves as we go through trials and difficulties in life, because Job is every man. Job, I've said before, would be, if he were a Christian today, move him forward 3,800 years in time, he would be considered a, a devout Christian. And so it's like we get a ringside seat as he wrestles through understanding why are these difficulties happening to him. Well, God doesn't dodge this question. He doesn't take a marginal example, you know, somebody who just has, oh, he's a okay guy, and he has some kind of bad things happen to him. He takes a person whom even God says, he is, a, is an upright man who uh, fears God and shuns evil. And so God says, no, he's a, a righteous individual. And some of the worst things possible happen to him. So God's not dodging the question of what does it mean when bad things happen to good people? I mean, you can argue whether or not there are any, quote, good people. I would say no. The Bible would say no. But God isn't going to quibble. He's going to say, look, Job is an upright individual. And all these bad things happen to him. So what happens? Well, Satan comes before God. He's an angel with the other angels. And he has an accusation. He said, you know what, God? Job, and by the way, everybody else, they only serve you because you bless them, meaning you give them stuff, you make them prosper. In other words, they serve you and you give them a good life because Job was wealthy, Job was devout, Job had children, Job was well thought of in his community. And God said, I don't think so. That's not why Job, that's not why all of these people in 2019 serve me. And he said, very well. He said, just spare him, but do what you want. And he does. He bankrupts him. I mean, Satan comes and destroys all of his possessions. His children are all killed in a, like a tornado hits their house and they all die. And in the course of a day, his life goes from here to here. He goes from being well-known, well-respected, affluent to absolutely bankrupt and everything that he really values most in life, the things that he most loves, are gone. And so Satan comes back 
And Job, by the way, proves God right, not Satan. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave to me and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing. Satan comes back and he said, yeah, okay, I'll admit to you, Job's maybe a little better than most of these guys. He said, but when push comes to shove, skin for skin, you threaten his life and he will curse you to your face. And God said, you know what? I don't think that's why Job serves me. I don't think that's why any of these believers in 2019 serve me. And he said, very well, don't kill him, but he's in your hands. And so Job gets struck with just sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and he's sitting there suffering. And it said when his friends came to see him from afar, when they saw him, they began to cry and cry out because they hardly recognized him. He went from sitting in the city gate, a man of prominence, to sitting in the city dump, scraping his sores with potsherd. And he sat there and he suffered and he began to wrestle with God and ask the question, why is this happening to me? Question? Job was not a Jew, so how did he know God? Job was not a Jew, true. How did he know God? Well, as long as we've got our map up here. Let's see. We've got Abraham, we'll call him Abe, in 2000 BC. And Abraham was living up here, and God said, I want you to pick up and I want you to go to this land of Canaan, would be Israel. I'm pointing to Israel now. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to bless all the earth through you. I'm going to give you a land. In other words, Abraham is the father of this chosen group of people that God was going to work through to influence all of the world and bless all of the world. And eventually, Jesus comes from the lineage of Abraham 2,000 years later and does indeed bless all of the earth through, uh, through Abraham. So, But Job lives a couple hundred years later. He's not a descendant as far as we know, and no one believes that he's a descendant of Abraham. But God was known before Abraham. Let's go back and think about Noah. We're going to go back a little bit further. This is Genesis 12. This is back in about Genesis 6. And so let's go back to Noah. And you have people that know God, but they're not following God. And so the flood comes, and Noah's descendants come out, and they began to worship God. But in that intervening time, people go astray, people follow their own desires, and the earth becomes very corrupted. But that doesn't mean everyone deserted God. And so the thought is, is Job is one of those just descendants of Noah that still follows and serves God. So he isn't a Jew, but he still serves God. And so that's a good question because there's more going on than just Abraham. Starting in Genesis 12, the Bible focuses on Abraham and his descendants, but it doesn't mean Abraham's the only person that still believed in God. Good question. Did Job know that it was Satan attacking him, or is the awareness of a satanic attack only coming to us through the Holy Spirit? Great question. Was Job aware that Satan was attacking him? There is nothing in the text. In fact, I would argue the text says just the opposite, that Job doesn't know. He certainly doesn't know about God's interaction with Satan, 
and this Satan's accusations. I mean, Satan is, the word Satan is not a name, it's a title, the Satan, the accuser. And accusers never accuse you to your face, they accuse you behind your back. And so here's Satan accusing Job behind his back, if you will. So there's nothing in the text that would indicate that Job understands that there is a, a Satan, a devil, who is causing this. He only understands that something is happening and God is in control, and so his wrestling is with God. So I don't find anything in the text that would tell us that Job understood that. I think that's part of why we get to have this ringside seat to realize, oh, there's more going on than even you and I can usually see. If you remember, go to the uh, book of uh, Galatians and you'll see, or excuse me, in uh, Ephesians, you'll see the idea of Paul saying, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm, meaning what you think your battle is against, whether it's cancer, whether it's people, whether it's oppression. He said there's more going on than that. There's no real evidence that I can see in the book that Job understands the extent of that. That's a good question. Why did God allow Satan to tempt him concerning the persecution of Job? Uh, Jesus, after all, didn't allow it during his 40 days in the wilderness. I'm not sure I understood that one completely. So basically, uh, why did God allow Satan to inflict the suffering on Job? Probably. And the idea of Satan didn't have that power over Jesus to, for example, cause him to suffer and have power and sores. And that's a good question. I mean, why? Why not? But the the story of Job is intended. I mean, what happens in the Old Testament has a purpose. It has an immediate purpose, and this is true for almost everything I can think of that happened historically in the Old Testament, happened then in real life, in real history, and it had real meaning. But later you realize, oh my goodness, God was actually telling us something far bigger. I mean, think about the Exodus, think about all these events, and you realize what God was doing with the Jews was foreshadowing far greater things that he would do with us. I think Job is the same way. I don't think that God said to Satan, oh, by the way, all the believers out there, just go make them all have sores and suffer and kill, you know, just make them suffer. I think Job is going through something in that time so that partly at least, so that all of us for the next 3,800 years could have a framework to understand why might bad things happen to good people. So I think that Job's situation is specifically for a purpose, and Job went through that for a purpose. And here's the interesting thing, as long as we're here, we might as well throw this in. All of our suffering is not always about us. I mean, this is the really interesting part of this. If you think about it, this really isn't about Job. It's like, well, did Job do something wrong? So God's going to punish him, and that's going to be our lesson. Well, no, that doesn't seem to be the message of the book. Well, Job just happened to be in the wrong place in the wrong time, and God's trying to teach us a lesson. Don't live in northern Arabia in 1800 B.C. No, well, that's not the message of the book either, is it? It seems like that what's happening to Job has more to do with what God wants to say to us than it does to him. 
And that's a powerful lesson about our suffering. We'll talk about this a little more later in the book, but sometimes when we go through trials or difficulties, or people that we love go through trials and difficulties, it's not always about us. I know that you, like me, think, I am the star of this show. In fact, you are all supporting cast. You know, this is the life of Terry, right? And everything that happens, well, it must be about me. Well, that's not true, is it? Same with Job. Job is wrestling with this, and we know, even though he doesn't, that it's not about you, Job. In fact, if Job, if you only knew what's happening to you is going to change the lives of billions of people who read this through the next 3,800 years, well, that would give him a different perspective, wouldn't it? All I'm saying is God is trying to say to us, you know what? Our trials aren't always all about us. God may have something else going on. And I think that's very helpful sometimes to know. Because remember, I told you, I think suffering shrinks our world and it shrinks our perspective. And you're going to see that happen to Job. And it happens to us. But sometimes you can step back and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't all about me. Maybe everything that's happening to me is not all about me. Maybe I'm actually cooperating with God to do something bigger and better. Well, that's what's happening to Job, but I don't think Job understands that at this point. So Job, after this, he, uh, he does a great job, actually. When he gets struck like this, he says, shall we accept good from God and not evil? In other words, I've had a good life with God, and I thanked him. Now this happens. Am I going to curse him? He said, no, I'm not. But he sat down and he began to suffer and he began to wrestle. Remember, this is going on for a period of time. This isn't a short occurrence. And so he begins to wrestle with God. He begins to wonder, why is this happening? And then he begins to lament. Lament is a lost art. Lament has turned into complaining. Lament and complaining are two different things. Teenagers complain, adults lament. Okay, that's the difference. But his lament is simply looking at his situation. He doesn't say, oh, whoa, I'm a victim. He doesn't say, oh, somebody else caused it. He just says, you know what? Here I sit, suffering. And as I contemplate this suffering, and he begins to go through, he begins, his world begins to shrink, and he begins to think, you know what? It might have been better to never be born than to go through this. And the second thing he thinks is, well, if I were born and I am suffering, it might be better to die than suffer. We talked about these things in our last lesson. And then finally, he begins to wonder, you know what, God? Why did you even let me be born if you foresaw this suffering? This, on Job's balance, all of his life of pleasure or you know, good life, and this period of suffering, he says the suffering outweighed everything in the past. What does he know about the future? Well, he doesn't. And that's been one of our themes. It's kind of hard to know if suffering has a purpose unless you see the last chapter of the book. Well, he can't, so he's lamenting. In other words, he's just pouring out his heart saying, I think it might have been better to never be born than go through this because I'm in such turmoil and I'm in such pain. And he finally says this. I promised you last week we'd talk about it, so we will because I was afraid you wouldn't forget and you'd ask. So he says this. This is one of the most profound verses in this this book. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And I I challenge you to think about this and this, this question. What do you most fear in life? And what would you give 
to be rid of that fear. And so let's talk about that for just a moment. If you have questions, I'll answer them. But if not, I at least want to say this about this, uh, this idea. There are two ways to approach knowing what you fear most in the world and not wanting it to happen. You have two choices. This is not, does not take a rocket scientist. You either need to stop that thing from happening. And by the way, that's the choice of Western civilization. Certainly the choice of Americans. Let's alleviate any kind of suffering or difficulty. And I'm not just talking about physical suffering. I mean, obviously we pursue medicine, we want to get rid of diseases, that's a good thing. But we actually will pursue, you think about, it, what does success look like in our culture? It looks like you are powerful enough to make sure you are comfortable. You are rich enough to make sure you are taken care of. In other words, you get choices. You don't have to be told what to do. You get to choose whether you're going to the Bahamas or whether you're going to ski in Switzerland. In other words, that's what we visualize as success. What is that? That says bad things won't happen to me because I'm going to control my circumstances. And we do this, rich, poor, big, small. We're all trying to control our circumstances so that bad things don't happen to us. In other words, we want to do away with what we most fear by controlling our environment to make sure it isn't going to happen. Does that work? No, it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. But the thought that it might is the only thing that keeps the self-help industry in business, right? Is that, oh, if you act the right way, if you think the right way, if you do things the right way, if you invest the right way, you can control your circumstances. The truth is, Everybody, I don't care if you are the president of the United States or if you are the janitor at the local YMCA or whoever you are, everyone's life can be turned upside down with one phone call. That's all it takes. One phone call. So control is an illusion. Oh, it may work for a while and you might be able to get away with it for a while, but everybody is one phone call away from having your life turned upside down. It's a fool's pursuit, but it is the pursuit of Western civilization. But here's your second option, and this is where Christianity comes in. Christ says, you will not have ease in this world. Think of John 16, He says, I'm giving you my peace. He said, now in this world you will have trouble. Why? It's a fallen world. You will have trouble. You will die. You will suffer in some way at some point. He says, but take heart. He didn't say take heart. I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to you. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. God doesn't say, I'll keep the thing that you fear from happening. He says, I will take away your fear. That's your second choice, is taking away your fear, is so trusting in God to say, your will be done. And even if it's something I really don't want to happen, think Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass me by. Even if it's something I don't want, I know you can make it right. By the way, and I know I'm getting kind of long-winded, this is still the introduction, but I really want you to think about the story of Abraham and Isaac in this context. As long as we're here, you need to think about it this way. So Abraham, 2000 BC, this is called the Akita. 
It's, it's such a famous story, it's got a name. Akita means binding. So it's the binding of Isaac. So what happens? God, I'll give you the short version. God comes to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to get your son. He said, I have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. He said, your only son. He said, oh, well, they're both the only son of their mother. He says, the son you love. And he goes, I love both sons. Read the text. This is very interesting. He says, Isaac. And he goes, ah, the child of promise. He said, yeah, what, what's up with that? And he said, I want you to take him to the place I'll show you, and there you will sacrifice him. Abraham, with a heavy heart, goes, takes Isaac with him, and they go to the mountain, takes him up, and if you remember, he's ready to sacrifice him when all of a sudden the angel says, stop. And he says, there's a ram caught in the thicket, sacrifice that ram. He said, Abraham, now I know you absolutely trust me. What was the worst thing that could have happened to Abraham? He was promised progeny, got one child. He was promised the land, the great nation. It's all about to go up in smoke by his own hand. And God said, you face what you fear the most. And he said, stop. Now, why does Abraham able to do that? He doesn't do it calmly. He doesn't do it easily. And there's so much commentary on this, but I want to give you this one idea. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is in the New Testament. It's called the you know, the hall of faith, right? It's talking about all these faithful people. It talked about Abraham had faith, even to the point, trust, where he trusted God to face his worst nightmare. Why? He said, you know, he reasoned to himself that if necessary, God could bring him back to life. In other words, God would make this right. And that's really interesting, isn't it? And so my answer to that question is, you can't keep the thing you most fear from happening. It may happen, it may not, but you cannot control it. But what God says is, I'll take the fear, and you trust me. And that is the most freeing, most powerful lesson. That's the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus Christ, is God will take away our fear. Does that make sense? Okay, end of introduction. But I told you that I would talk about that, so I did. But think about that a little bit. I want you to, because every one of us sitting in here have children, parents, loved ones, whatever, and we have fears, we have anxiety about them. And I just want you to know it's a fool's game to try to control your circumstance so that you're never going to get hurt. But it is victory to trust God so much to know that there is nothing that he cannot make right in eternity and forever, not just in the short term, but forever. That's a powerful lesson. Job doesn't know that lesson. Job's wrestling with the why is this happening? Well, fortunately, Job has three buddies and Job's three buddies come to him and they begin to, they sit there with him for seven days. Remember that? And then they begin to talk to him and one at a time, they start to try to comfort him by telling him, Job, I think we know why this is happening. Well, let me introduce you to the first guy. His name is Eliphaz. Now I'm going to pick a few selections from Job chapter 4 to Job chapter 14. I'd urge you to read it. It's beautiful poetry, but obviously we can't go through uh, 10 chapters, but I'm going to pick pieces of their arguments so we can see what's going on. So here's what Eliphaz says. He said, Job, I heard that you, you are suffering so much you wish you had never been bored. But listen to this. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? So what is Eliphaz saying? Eliphaz is saying, if you are innocent, which you seem to say you are, you haven't sinned, you haven't done anything wrong, 
You don't know why this is happening to you. It's not just, which you and I know it's not. Job doesn't. But he says, I don't, I've done nothing wrong. And Eliphaz says, well, Job, if you're innocent, then you'll be okay. Because that's the way the world works, is if you're innocent, you will not suffer. Well, that's kind of a problem because Job sits here before him, right? It's also a problem because we just heard Jesus say, in this life, you're going to have trouble. And so that's not true. But we think that sometimes, don't we? If we do the right things, if we are innocent, if we are observant, if we are faithful, if we go to church, you know, 2.8 times a month, and, you know, if we tithe, if we do all those things, then we won't suffer. Well, that's Eliphaz. That's what he said. It's like, look, it's kind of a deal with God. You do the right things, you don't suffer. Well, Job's sitting there, and he goes, man, that's not resonating with me because I did all those things, and I'm still suffering. So Eliphaz goes on, and he says, can mortal man, these are just pretty. I just put this in here because they're pretty. Can mortal man be in the right before God? In other words, be careful about saying you're innocent because, come on, Job, nobody's really innocent. That part's true. Can a man be pure before his maker? In other words, you had to have done something, Job. I mean, did you steal a candy bar? Did you something? But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This is beautiful. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And then he says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil will touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. So what is Eliphaz basically saying? He says, Job, innocent people don't suffer. You say you're innocent, and yet you are suffering. Therefore, God must be disciplining you. So humble yourself before God and say, I obviously did something. I'm sorry, and accept your discipline. By the way, this philosophy works in most marriages. Have you ever, you know, most of, I'm just going to speak from the guy's point of view because that's all I know, is you quickly learn that in the dispute, you can save a lot of time, just apologize right away. You know, for whatever, don't be Job, don't sit there and suffer forever, don't protest your innocence. Eliphaz says, look, you must have done something. Just go ahead and apologize, and then maybe you can get through this. Well, that's really what he's saying. He said, God is disciplining you. The problem with that is, and I really don't want you to think that way because it isn't true, and we'll see that that's not the way God operates, is God does discipline them, those whom he loves. There's no truth. There's no question about that. That's true. God lets us go through things just like you let your children go through things because you could see that short-term pain or difficulty or inconvenience would result in long-term gain for them. And God does that with us. But Job's situation is not one that out of the blue, I'm going to discipline you. For what? What is the purpose? So Eliphaz is not correct, but that's his point of view. And he's the nicest of the three. So let me introduce you to the next couple of guys. So Bildad says, you know, Job responds to him a little bit, and Bildad says, well, Job, obviously you're not getting this. Let me just put this out to you this way. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now, that's cold. 
It's like, if your kids died, they did something to deserve it. I mean, who needs friends like this, right? So he said, God is just. So whatever happened to you is right. You deserved it. Now, here's the problem, and this is the great dilemma of the book of Job, and Job's going to get caught in this dilemma, and so do you and I, because basically the paradigm is this. Basically saying is God is just, and so people who sin suffer. Job, since you are suffering, you must have sinned. Here's the problem with that thinking. Job knows he hasn't sinned. Again, he's not saying he's perfect, but and you and I know Job hasn't sinned because even God said, oh, he's an upright man. He, you know, he, he fears God, he shuns evil. So that, what does that mean then? That little dichotomy means, well, wait a minute. If God is just and if you sin, you're punished, you're being punished, you must have sinned, and Job said, I didn't. Now what's the only alternative? God's not just anymore. God's not a good God. We end up there sometimes, don't we? When we get in difficulties, we wonder, is God really good? Why would God let this happen? How could a good God let this happen? We're in this paradigm whether we re realize it or not. We've made an assumption just like Bildad has. Well, God is just, so if bad things happen, must have done something wrong. Problem is, if you and I say, wait a minute, I didn't do anything to deserve that, your only choice in that little paradigm is then there must be something wrong with God. Job's going to wrestle with this quite a bit. But that's the second thing that comes out to him. Now, this is the flip side of prosperity theology. You don't recognize it because this is the photo negative of prosperity theology. This looks at it from the dark side. It says, God is just. If you sin, you suffer. Okay, so that's the dark side. Flip it over, and it says, if you follow God and if you're devout, you will prosper. That's prosperity theology. It is the photo negative of this, and it's no more true than this is. And the problem with prosperity theology is the same dilemma. Job's got a dilemma. If that's true, and Job says, wait a minute, I didn't sin, so there must be something wrong with God. Well, let's flip to the prosperity theology. Wait a minute, I was devout. I did believe, but my child wasn't healed. What's your only choice? There's something wrong with God. This is a flawed argument. It doesn't represent the nature of God. But on both sides, Job, you must have sinned. And he goes, I didn't. There must be something wrong with God. Or prosperity theology, if you had enough faith, you would get what you wanted. Well, I did have enough faith, so there must be something wrong with God. And all of these things really fall short. Bildad then goes on to say, you know what, my, my advice is seek God and plead with the Almighty. If you're pure and upright, surely he'll rouse himself for you. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. So what's he saying? He's basically saying, repent and confess, and maybe God will have mercy on you. In other words, you need to admit whatever it is you did, and then maybe God will have mercy on you. So two out of three, nobody's got an answer for Job. Finally, the third guy comes along. By this time, he's just, he's frustrated. He's revved up. He's heard these two guys try to explain it to Job. He's heard Job say, but I didn't do anything, and he's had enough. So Zophar is his name. Zophar pops up, and he says, Job, you say my doctrine is pure, 
and I am clean in God's eyes. In other words, Job, you're saying you didn't do anything wrong, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know this, God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Now think about that. This is definitely not the friend you want. So far says to him, hey, I've listened to you keep saying you're innocent, even though these guys tell you you can't be. It's not possible. You're suffering. can't be innocent, right? And yet you continue. You know what I think, Job? You ought to thank God because you probably deserve worse than this. And Job's going, what is worse than this? You know, I've lost everything I have. I've lost all my children. I'm sitting here suffering. What can you imagine that is worse? I mean, Job's been saying, Lord, do me a favor and kill me. He said, if you would just crush me, Lord, that would be a kindness to me. And Zophar says, well, you probably actually deserve worse than this. You know, and that kind of gets into that whole legalistic thing, doesn't it? And that gets really ugly because sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have. I'll just confess to you that when you talk to somebody and you believe that you're telling them the truth about God and they won't accept it, do you ever get mad at them? Well, I know it sounds dumb, but you kind of do. It's like, look, I've been telling you, this is the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. And you keep coming up with these cockamamie things, and you're just wrong. And maybe they are wrong. But after a while, you get angry with them for being wrong. And you're like, why can you not see this? Well, that's so far. He says, Job, you know what? You probably deserve worse than this because now I'm mad at you. You know, that you don't see this, that you won't buy into this. And so Job is not exactly getting the world's greatest advice. And finally, Zophar says, but you know what, Job? If you prepare your heart, you stretch your hands toward him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. And all he's saying by that is, appeal to God and you have to confess what you did. Well, you see Job's dilemma. His friends haven't been much help to him because I think he would gladly confess his sin He just doesn't know what it is. He hasn't sinned, and you and I know that he hasn't sinned. So really, sometimes we're a little bit guilty of giving people, in this case, these these things aren't true about God. God's going to weigh in. He has some choice words for these three guys at the end of the book. But the point is, these are not true things about God, and yet there's kind of appealing things to believe sometimes. I mean, if you think about it, when things are going well, it's kind of appealing to think that Okay, I keep doing the right things. God keeps taking care of me. That sounds really good. And then when bad things happen, we start to wonder, and you start to second-guess yourself. And this is, this is where the accuser, this is where the Satan loves to come at you and say, you know, things aren't going so well. You know why that probably is? You probably did something wrong. And you and I, unlike Job, would go, well, as a matter of fact, I have sinned. I, I have done things wrong. And he goes, yeah, that's probably why. That's why you can't have a baby. That's why you got cancer. That's why your loved one died. That's why this is happening. And that is the essence of what Satan lives for, is to tell you and me lies like this. That's what's happening here, is basically Job is being bombarded with things that are not true, that do nothing but continue to tear him down. And that's why it's so important to speak encouragement but to speak truth to people who are suffering. And when I say truth, I don't mean truth of reproof. I mean truth as in, I know it doesn't feel, we've all done this, I do not feel 
like God loves me today because I am in the midst of these trials and I don't know why he didn't, doesn't rescue me. I mean, the Psalms are full of this, right? David cries out, how long, O Lord, will you wait until you rescue me from this? We don't feel loved, but we need people to tell us the truth, and that is you are loved, that this doesn't mean you're not loved. We need people to speak truth to us and say, suffering isn't always about you. It isn't that God is angry at you. God's not mad at you. God's not punishing you for this. And so we need to hear truth in the midst of suffering because sometimes what we know in our head is so hard to feel in our hearts, especially when hard things come. Well, Job finally responds to his three friends. And Job, as much as he's suffering, the guy's still got a sense of humor. So this is one of my favorite verses, another one, in Job. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. I just think that's great. He says, you know what? If you three guys ever die, there'll be no wisdom left in the world. I mean, it drips with sarcasm, right? He's basically saying, you guys are no help at all. And he says, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? In other words, he said, I believed all those things too. I just now realize there's cracks in that. Maybe that's not true because if you sit where I am, he says, the only answer is there's something wrong with God. And he says, I'm just not willing to believe that. So maybe these assumptions aren't right about God. She says, I have understanding. I'm not inferior. Who doesn't know these things? He said, I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am now a laughingstock. And then he says this, behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash this situation with lies. Worthless physicians are you guys. Oh, that you would keep silent, and that would be your wise advice. So Job's had enough of this advice. He knows this can't be right. But what does Job do? He says, I am going to appeal my case to the Supreme Court. In other words, he says, look, I can't explain it either, but I know that's not right. That only leads one place. There's something wrong with God. And he says, no, I don't believe that. He said, so I'm going to have to talk to God. And in fact, I've got an issue with God. Now, by the way, I want you to notice, because you and I feel this way. We get angry with God. We get frustrated with God. We're like, God, if you were here, I'd give you a piece of my mind, the part that you created, but I'd still give it to you, you know? And we do that. We feel that way. But you're going to see at the end of the book, and you see here now, God is not upset with Job wrestling with this. And he's not upset with us wrestling with it. Because you notice what Job hasn't done? He hasn't cursed God and turned away and said, there is no God. He still wants to appeal to God. There's the distinction between, let me just bring it into modern terms, Christ followers is the idea, I'm a Christ follower. When things go well, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a jogger. I'm a Christ jogger in those times. I want to get as close to him as I can. What about the bad times? 
Well, I'm going to complain to him, so I'm still following him. That's what Job is doing. In other words, he's always oriented toward God in good times and hard times with his complaints with others. Think about David. You know, you've heard that old saying, David was a man after God's own heart. And you look at David's story and you go, what? How's that possible? Well, he's not a man after God's own heart because he sinned. He's a man after God's own heart because he repented, meaning I am sorrowful to death. And he turns to God and he says, forgive me. He's oriented toward God. He's always moving that way. So is Job. Watch this. As much as he's complaining, who's he complaining to? By the way, off the subject, but good point here. What is up with atheists? What is your beef? You don't believe there's a God, so shut up. I mean, who are you complaining about? I mean, seriously, it's kind of an, it's ironic, isn't it? Like, who are you complaining to? I don't believe in God, God's bad, God's evil, God's this. What, the God you don't believe in? I mean, why are you writing books? Why do you go to school to be an atheist? Like, you're kidding, you don't, you basically went to study something you don't believe in. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And that's your, that's really your profession. Yes, that's my profession. That's a silly thing for an adult to be doing. And, you know, I mean, just saying that if you don't believe in God, it's really hard to complain. Job does, and Job wrestles with God. Job complains to God, and God gathers him in. Watch what happens through this story. It's very encouraging because you don't have to float about six inches off the ground and go, I'm suffering, but I'm happy. I'm the perfect Christian. I mean, that's not Job, is it? And yet, I want you to notice, all joking aside, his orientation is always to God. No matter what happens, I feel happy, I feel sad, it's back to God. And that's the key to being a Christ follower. So Job is struggling with his perspective, right? He doesn't have an answer. We don't always have an answer. We begin to struggle with getting a perspective. Suffering shrinks our world, makes it even harder to get a perspective, doesn't it? I mean, when you're in pain, you see a small world. And so that's what's happening to Job. So Job says this. This is really interesting. And he just kind of comes out with this. A man dies and he's laid low. A man breathes his last and where is he? As waters fall uh, or fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. He has fallen into what is called nihilism. Nihilism says, I don't understand the meaning of what's happening. And that's true, he, he doesn't. In fact, I would argue he can't, based on what he knows, understand what's going on. He can't understand the meaning. And the same is true for you and me. There are things that happen and you might ask, why is this happening to me? The truth is, no one has an answer to that. Only the author of your book, who wrote the last chapter, can tell you that. All you and I have is trust in the author of our life, that indeed the last chapter explains everything. But he doesn't know and he can't know. And if you don't have know the meaning, sometimes you default into life doesn't have any meaning. That is the road to hopelessness and despair, and it leads us to really dark places. And that's where Job goes. Is what he's basically saying is, you know, people die and that's it. He said, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no nothing. Honestly, that is the message of a lot of our secular world. Nobody wants to believe it, 
But if you happen to be a Darwinist, then that's kind of what you believe. I know you don't want to think about it. That's why you don't have any trouble necessarily. I'm not saying everybody that believes that supports this idea, but I'm just telling you, you've got a hard argument to make that the law that was passed in New York, the law that's proposed in Virginia, you know, killing babies right before they're born, if you're a Darwinist and you're honest, so what? Life doesn't have a specific meaning. You're not special. You're random. And that's where this nihilistic idea infects our culture. Not, you don't have to suffer to think, to realize, I'm nothing special. I'm the result of kind of natural selection, which just means random mutations, and I'm here, and I'm just like all the rest of the six billion people on this earth. So, you know, what's special about me? And you kind of get this low-grade nihilism. And what I mean by that is you kind of get this idea that maybe there is no real meaning in life, and that leads us to dark places. I would just point to look at the statistics in our world people are suffering because they don't even have enough to eat. Come to the Western world and look where people have all their basic needs met. Oh, they should be happy. No, they're not happy because there's no meaning in life. That's why our depression rates are so high. That's why our suicide rates, God forbid, are so high. That's why so many just dark things are happening in our culture. Why? There's no meaning to it. And that's a dark place and that's where Job goes. And more people than you and I would like to admit that we see at work are in that place. Maybe not in a crisis like Job, like I'm in the middle of a crisis, but kind of that low grade, I really couldn't tell you what the meaning of good times, bad times. I couldn't really tell you what the meaning of life is. It's a really modern kind of a problem. Ecclesiastes, I love this book. Uh, Ecclesiastes, and it's weird to love this book, but bottom line, Ecclesiastes is the story of basically, it's just a downer. I mean, it's not as bad as Job, but it's depressing. Listen to this. He said, I, the preacher, this is Solomon, have been king over Israel, like the richest dude ever, total power. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In other words, I decided I'm gonna figure out the meaning and he said, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and, and listen, everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That's Ecclesiastes 1.12. Read that before you go to bed. You'll sleep really well. But seriously, that, and I'll tell you why I like this book. That's what the world looks like. Here's the cross, and here's the gospel. On that side of the cross... That's what the world looks like. He's being honest. He said, I'm just gonna be your average American in 2019. I got everything you could want. I'm gonna look around and I'm gonna tell you, here's the meaning of life. And he says, it's meaningless and it's a chasing after the wind. And that's where Job is. And I think that's where a lot of us can get to. And that's why I think his story is so absolutely powerful. And what he's struggling for right now is perspective. Widen his perspective a little bit. Well, in our next lesson, his friends are going to try again to widen his perspective. They will fail. And then God is going to speak, and he is going to provide a really different framework. So let me pause for a minute. What questions do we have here? You mentioned that the devil tells us lies, 
How is he able to do that? He doesn't live in us like the Holy Spirit does, and we don't hear him audibly. How is it that he tells us things like, that's why you have cancer? Right, that's a great question. How does the devil tell us lies? He is certainly the accuser, and you can understand that. This is going to be a hard question to answer. First of all, let me just tell you what he doesn't do, what he can't do. I do not find anything in the text that says the devil can read your mind. He is not God. He is a created being. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent. He is not God. He is not a God. He's not like God. He's a created being. So first of all, he can't do that. He can't read your mind. I don't believe that Satan can look at you and go, here's the imperious curse, you are now under my power and you'll do whatever I tell you to do. You know, it's not a Harry Potter kind of thing, right? Probably, let me just defer this question to somebody who's probably brighter than I am. I want to refer you to a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And I'm not trying to duck this question, but if you would, you will find that to be a very amusing and convicting and fascinating book. The screw tape letters are, a, it's a fiction. It's an imaginary letters from one of the head demons to his nephew, one of the junior demons. And this junior demon, angel, who serves Satan, has been assigned to a Christian. And he goes through and he kind of talks about, gives the young demon advice as to what he's supposed to do to corrupt this Christian. And the way he describes it is a good answer to that question. And so let me just leave it at that and say that is a book that I think you'll go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. No, he's not necessarily whispering in my ear, but yes, I can see how circumstances can move us and, and just as God works for good in our lives, Romans 8, 28, in all circumstances, God works for good, not necessarily my immediate good, but God is at work in the world. Satan, to some extent, is also at work in the world. So take a look at that book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Very instructive. It's fiction, but really a great answer to that question. Are you going to talk about the Christian perspective of suffering and rejoicing in suffering and trials? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, spoiler alert. So are we going to talk about the Christian idea of suffering and the idea of rejoicing in suffering? Yes, we will. But at this point, Job isn't there. Do you, under, you know what I'm saying? Job, I want to kind of walk through this questions by walking through the story of Job and Job's journey through this. Because I also think that it would be easy for me to say to you, quote you a few scriptures that says, Suffering of some kind, not necessarily Job suffering, but suffering of some kind is essential to faith formation. Suffering with Christ is a privilege, and consequently, it is something that is an investment, if you will, in our faith. If I said that to you, you're going to walk out of here, your life is going to be absolutely no different than it was before I said that. You're going to forget it, frankly, by the time you get to dinner. But if we will walk through six or seven weeks with Job, I think it will let us feel and bring into our hearts an understanding of what could suffering mean. I'd like for us to identify with Job at every stage. That's why today I want to talk about Job's kind of nihilistic. And by that I mean Job's kind of gotten to the point he goes, well, unless there's something wrong with God, which I don't believe, maybe this doesn't make any sense. Maybe it is just random bad stuff. 
that's happening. He becomes a little nihilistic. You and I do too. I want us to feel our way through this with Job. But yes, we will talk about how the cross puts a completely different light on this. But I think we need to walk through with Job and kind of discover it as he discovers it. So yes, we will talk about that. Good question. Well, I need to tell you one of my favorite quotes. It kind of goes along with that. So let's go to a Christian, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you're familiar with his works, but they're just amazing. Uh, he's dead. I mean, this, we're talking now a couple hundred years old. But Charles Spurgeon has written so many good things, but there's a quote that has stuck with me. And this kind of goes to this. This is where Job is, going, is learning, and I'll take you to the end of it. He said this. I want you to think about this. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Job doesn't understand this yet, but what is, being, is happening here is all of Job's understanding and meaning have been stripped away. I'm not talking about the physical sense now. I'm going to go to the spiritual side. He said, Job, you used to think, to some extent, maybe not in the top of your head, you used to think that if you did all these good things, I'd take care of you. Wonder what you'll think when you're not taken care of anymore. And you used to think that if you were innocent and you feared God, shunned evil, that nothing really bad would... Well, now something really bad did happen to you. Job, I want to strip away all of that stuff you thought you knew. And now what are you going to do? And that's you, every one of us is going to be in that situation. Not that bad a situation, but you're going to wake up in the middle of the night sometime and you're going to be thinking, what is the meaning of this? I mean, God, what are you doing? And sometimes God strips that away and the whole purpose is to slam us against the rock of ages. In other words, where can I go? Where does Job go? His friends don't have the answer. He's smart enough not to listen to those bozos. Where does he go? He turns to God. And he turns to God with just the, the frustration, the desire, the wrestling. But he turns to God. And here's this wave of suffering. And where did it slam him? It slammed him right up against God. And God said, finally, I have your attention. And finally, here we are together. Maybe the circumstances aren't what you wanted. But here we are. And Charles Spurgeon was wise enough and had that Christian understanding that said, I have learned as much as I hate that wave to kiss the wave that, that slams me against the rock of ages. Job can't see that yet, but next week Job's, Job is going to get a glimmer of, of a hope, a glimmer of a way out of that. So this week, I don't know how much you take away, I want you to think about how How's Job's situation me? Uh, Job is every man. Job is all of us. Maybe not to that extent, but every one of us are going to feel the way Job felt. We're going to wonder what Job wondered, and we're going to struggle with these silly paradigms we sometimes build up about God that aren't really true. And when you get in that situation, I want you to remember Job. And I want you to say, I'm not the first person who walked this road. I am not the first person who walked this road. And so as we move through this, I want you to think about it, meditate on it. Last time I told you to think about this idea of what, is the, what do you fear most in life and what would you do to not let it happen? And the truth is, there's nothing you can do 
to not make it happen, but there is something you can do to take the fear away. And this week, I want you to meditate on that idea. I can't think of a better way to say it than Spurgeon said it, is Job has been slammed against the rock of ages, against God. What would it take for you and I to be able to say what Spurgeon said? I have learned to be grateful for the wave that put me in this position. I'll see you guys next week, and we'll see how Job is holding up.